Hi, it's John and Deb here. We live in Dubai and work in a church called Fellowship. Thank you so much for your partnership with us. We are very thankful for that. And it's really great to be able to spend some time with you today, just to fill you in on what we're doing. We're also very aware of your own lockdown and how difficult that has been for you. Uh, and uh, we, are, in a sense, are in a very similar situation to you. Um, our church services haven't been meeting since March this year. That's a whole seven months. In the meantime, we've been having online services, uh, and that's filled in the gap a little bit, but of course it's nothing like actually meeting together, uh, is it? But for us, the good news is that we're expecting in the next few weeks to be able to get back together again live in our services. And so we're busy preparing for that right now, trialling some socially distanced services uh, so that we can get as many people as we can back into live meetings. Uh, our 242 small group Bible study ministry has been going really well. Uh, we've got about 100 groups and they've all moved online and they've been doing that since March and for most of them that's going pretty well. In fact we've got new 242 groups that have started up over the last few months so those people have never actually met face to face at all and uh, they're looking forward to doing that uh, pretty soon. Some of the areas of struggle uh, that we've experienced are that many people have lost their jobs, uh, both in the community but, but, but fellowship members especially. When you lose your job here, there's no social security at all and also your, your visa is attached to your job only. So if you've lost your job, you have to leave the country. Um, a lot of people don't have enough money even to, to pay for an airfare back home. Uh, so that's a really difficult situation and it means that uh, the church will be impacted by that. So um, we have also had, we have a lot of Emirates pilots and cabin crew and many, many of them are in this situation. Uh, there, there's a group of 195 uh, people in that, uh, in, who are cabin crew and uh, five of their leadership team have had to leave the country as well as many others. Some other areas that have been hard are, are with our 242 groups. Um, some, many people don't have a, a laptop or computer so they're on their phone but they're persisting which is fantastic. Uh, people continue to come to faith uh, through our online services and that's a tremendous encouragement. So here are a few things to, uh, that we'd love to ask you to pray for. Um, please pray for uh, people who have had a really tough time uh, here, uh, believers, especially those who are new believers, um, that they keep trusting in God. Please pray for our 242 leaders uh, as they continue to grow themselves and as they encourage their groups. There's been terrific um, prayer support and care and practical care in our 242 groups. Um, our fellowship runs a food, food ministry and there's been many other uh, ways that people have shown their, their love and their care. Um, and the, the other area for prayer is to pray that people uh, continue to um, put down firm foundations in the faith, those who are new believers and who don't know their Bibles at all well, um, whether we are able to meet in person or whether we continue online. And then the third thing to pray is for our staff team that we continue to persevere through this time. Uh, we are very thankful for all the ways that God is at work um, and for helping us to um, continue this ministry, but we really appreciate you, your prayer for us. Our, um, 
Uh, I receive each week your prayer letter, uh, your prayer email, and so I know you've been doing a series in 2 Corinthians, and so in a moment John's going to read the passage for us. But again, thank you for your, your support for us through the, our company, and if you uh, don't receive our, our updates and would like to, then Jono or another of the staff members could, could uh, put you in touch with us. As Deb said, uh, we hear you've been doing a, a series in 2 Corinthians, so let me read your passage for today, which is your Bible reading, which comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 to 21, and I think you've been using the CSV version, so I've, um, I'll read it from that version. This is Paul speaking. I have been a fool. You forced it on me. You ought to have commended me, since I am not in any way inferior to those super-apostles, even though I, I am nothing. The signs of an apostle were performed with unfailing endurance among you, including signs and wonders and miracles. So in what way are you worse off than the other churches, except that I personally did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. Look, I am ready to come to you this third time. I will not burden you, and since I am not seeking what is yours, but you... For children ought not to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Now, granted, I did not burden you, yet sly as I am, I took you in by deceit. Did I take advantage of you by any of those I sent you? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus didn't take advantage of you, did he? Didn't we walk in the same spirit and in the same footsteps? Have you been thinking all along that we were defending ourselves to you? No. In the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ, and everything, dear friends, is for building you up. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what I want, and you may not find me to be what you want. Perhaps there will be quarrelling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence, and I will grieve for many who sinned before and have not repented of the moral impurity, sexual immorality and sensuality they practised. Wasn't it good to hear from those guys? We had them at our church, I don't know, it feels like a century ago. Uh, it's so good to hear what God is doing through them in Dubai. And I just love those guys. I, I don't know if you know, I, I worked with them for a year at St. Jude's Church in Carlton. We shared an office, the three of us, which was roughly the size of a matchbox. And it was just great getting to hang out with them. They're so good together. They, they work so well together. And they're just really good people evidenced by the fact that for about a decade now, I have almost exclusively referred to John as Sugar Daddy, and not once has he asked me not to do that. Not once has he told me off for doing that, and that's the mark of a good guy. All right, so thank you, Sugar Daddy and Deb, for uh, that little update. Anyway, back to the point. Uh, in this passage that we just had read, uh, we're going to see Paul's heart for the church in Corinth, his great love for them, which in this case is actually expressed in a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear for them. 
He's genuinely concerned for them. So you see in, in verse 28 of chapter 11, going back a couple of weeks, he gives this list of sufferings that he's been through, like being whipped and beaten and shipwrecked and uh, in the open sea and suffering from cold and false brothers and all these things. And then he finishes that, that little passage by saying, verse 28 of chapter 11, not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. The daily pressure, his great concern for these Christians whom he loves and cares for deeply. He says again in uh, a couple of chapters ago in chapter 7 in verse 5, he says, In fact, when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. And he's going to express the nature of those fears in this passage today. He, you know, for better or worse, he, he, he has a lot of anxiety about these people and it's born out of this great love for them it is actually if we're thinking back reflecting on the letter as a whole it is the thing that drives so much of what he writes to them this deep concern this anxiety this fear for them i have a sense and this is probably why it's at the forefront of my mind as as we as we look at this passage I have a sense that for the first time I get a little bit about what what he's feeling because it's so hard for him right he is disconnected from these people and obviously at the time being geographically uh, disconnected from people meant you were absolutely disconnected from them there was no I mean there was no landline phone let alone you know SMS uh, social media, you know, easy ways of staying in touch, no mail service that was at all reliable. And so he is, he is disconnected from them and he knows that there's stuff going on among them which is threatening their very salvation. And so he feels this great weight of anxiety. And for the first time, I, I have a little glimpse into what that's like because for seven months now, I've been talking to you through this camera and I'm doing my best just to imagine you you know, they're watching this and, 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 and I'm doing my best to be able to communicate you on a, with you on a, on a personal level, but it's difficult. It's disconnected. You know, what struck me a lot over the last seven months is just how much I rely as a pastor on the incidental shepherding that takes place. Right on a Sunday after church, the incidental catch up, the, the midweek coffee or, or, or whatever it is, all of this incidental shepherding, which enables us and enables me as a pastor to sort of have a sense of where people are in their walk with Jesus. All of that has been cut off. And I know we've done our best to replace it electronically, digitally, but it's, it's, it can't be replaced. And so I find in, in myself, right, in my, in my body, I can feel it, this weight of anxiety, this weight of concern, this fear for the people of our church, many of whom I just haven't seen for so long. I get it. And it's disturbing. Now, in this passage that we're going to look at, Paul's going to turn his attention to the people of his church. 
He's going to have one more shot at the super apostles, but really his main concern is for these people, and he's telling them, I'm going to come to you soon. He's about to make his third visit to Corinth, and he wants to kind of prepare them for that visit. First of all, he's just going to get one more shot in at the super apostles. Okay, so verse 11 to 13, he says, I have been a fool. You forced it on me. You ought to have commended me since I am not in any way inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of an apostle were performed with unfailing endurance among you, including signs and wonders and miracles. So in what way are you worse off than the other churches, except that I personally did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. You can, I think you can hear this, this, the strain that he's under. You can hear the anxiety that he has for these people. And there are a couple of ways of reading that, that what he's just said, that kind of sarcastic, uh, you know, forgive me for you know, not burdening you in that way. There's a couple of ways to read that. One way is a very, uh, a, a way that we is at the very least lacking in generosity of spirit. And that's, I read a few this week. I went looking for them and it, there was no shortage of them. Critiques of Paul uh, as he writes this letter. People saying, you know, he's so insecure. Look at the way that he, you know, he speaks in such a petty way. He's so sarcastic. It's, it's just evidence that he's insecure. The way that he's always putting himself forward as an apostle, not inferior to those apostles, talking about his miracles, right? And just searing critiques of Paul as a person to the point where some were saying he's so unchrist like we shouldn't listen to him. I think what you can find, what you can hear there is genuine frustration at being disconnected from them and genuine fear for their well-being. And this is what he's feeling as he makes plans to to make another expensive, dangerous, time-consuming trip down to Corinth. I think if you are a parent of children, you get this. And he's going to refer to himself as their parent in just a minute. But you, you understand what it's like to experience deep concern for your children. I, I know my dad felt this when I was I just turned 19. I decided to go overseas and travel on my own. I did a whole bunch of backpacking just on my own. I just, I really just threw myself out there into the unknown uh, and just, and, and just went with it for, for months and months and months on end. The best part of a couple of years just off. And at the time, there was no way that my dad could interact with me regularly, right? And there was no desire in me to, to, to make sure that we had those interactions. I was just off. Um, my failure to communicate was partly because it cost about 30 bucks a minute to make a landline phone call back to Australia. Uh, and partly because I just, I was, I was, I was the prodigal son. I, I, I had just, I had just left my home country for a foreign land. And it, and that was just the, the mission that I was on for better or worse. And, and there was definitely some worse there. 
But for my dad back here, without that means of communication, with his head filled with all kinds of stuff that might be going on, that's the, that's the parental concern, the paternal concern that Paul feels for the church in Corinth. And it comes out in these ways that, yeah, maybe, maybe he is a little sarcastic. Maybe he is being a little bit petty. Well, that's how he feels. And this passage in particular, he's being super honest with the church in Corinth, come what may, even though that makes him vulnerable, particularly to attack from these opponents he has, he's going to be up front with them. And so he says in verse 14, as he turns his attention to the church, he says, chapter 12, verse 14, look, he said, can I just be real with you? Look, I'm ready to come to you this third time. I will not burden you, since I am not seeking what is yours, but you. For children ought not save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Speaking of anxieties, I'm currently very anxious that this sermon is not being recorded. Last week, I preached the whole sermon without turning the microphone on. So just one second. I think we're okay. Um, there's a lot of anxiety in the room at the moment. I'm feeling it. Um, let me just read that again. I apologize. He says, look, I'm ready to come to you this third time. I will not burden you since I am not seeking what is yours, but you. For children ought to save up for their pa- children ought not save up for their parents, but parents for their children. What he's saying is, listen, I, this is how I see myself with you guys. I'm, I'm a parent to you. I'm a, I'm a spiritual father to you. This concern I have is driven at, as a kind of parental concern. It's, it's born out of love for you. This is a theme that we've seen over and again. All right, so verse 15, he goes on and says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? As a parent, I'm going to spend and be spent for you. Every parent knows what, what, exactly what that's about. You never had to take a course to instruct you how to give yourself up for your children. It just happens. It's, it's, it's intuitive. It's born out of the very core of your being as a parent. He said similar things in chapter 11, the last chapter we looked at in verse, I think it's verse 2 of chapter 11. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. Again, this parental language that he is jealously guarding them and is jealous for them to be pure, to be kept pure for the Lord Jesus. Ultimately, that's what it's about. It's not about him. It's about Jesus it's about their salvation. It's, it's the very, the, the very, their very status before God that hangs in the balance in the midst of these dangers that are posed from without. Again, chapter 11, in verse 11, he says, um, Why? 
because I don't love you? God knows I do, right? He just wants them so much to know this is where all of this is coming from. He's not just some cranky old man writing harsh letters to them, and he's not driven, as some of those critics said, by this inferiority complex or, or lack of security. He's driven by love. Do you know one of the most devastating things that has happened to me in my ministry at this church and something that I think about often because it's, it, it really wounded me was years ago now, um, I made the mistake of listening when somebody was telling me something that someone else was saying. And you know, I have this personal policy, you should have it too. Whenever someone comes along and says, you know, these people are saying, or this person said, you just need to shut your ears and tell them, stop. Right? As awkward as it is, you need to say, stop, and just say, whatever you were going to say about what they said, tell them to come and say it to me. So important. So important that we do that. Anyway, I didn't do that. And probably because my ears were itching to know what are, what, what are people saying? Anyway, this person said that somebody said to them, uh, you know, Jono, he always, at the end of the sermon, he always says, or at the end of the service, he always says, uh, I love you guys. Uh, but he doesn't show it. And they were feeling really hurt by me. I, to this day, I don't know the exact circumstances, but essentially they were saying he says he loves us, but he doesn't. And I think about that so often. And I need to acknowledge that I'm sure there's some truth to that. I'm sure very often my actions, my words, my just the way I am doesn't reflect the deep love I have for the people of our church. I acknowledge that. But what that person said, it just seems so out of sync with what I feel, with the deepest convictions that I have, with a profound sense of love for, care for, concern for the people of our church. And so it really has kind of wounded me. Paul says in verse 19, Have you been thinking all along that we were defending ourselves to you? No. In the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ. And everything, dear friends, is for building you up. Again, he says, this is not about me. This is not about self-aggrandizement. This is not about self-defense. This is about you guys. This is about our love for you. This is about our concern to build you up. That undergirds everything that we're doing here, that undergirds everything that I'm writing to you. So now he's going to address this third visit and he's going to prepare the way for him to come to them and he's going to be very, very honest with them about the fears he has for them. So in the first part of verse 20, 20a, he says, For I fear that perhaps when I come... I will not find you to be what I want, and you may not find me to be what you want. This is his first fear, that they won't like what they see in each other when he arrives. Literally, to, to, to kind of put literally what he's written there, it's, it's um, 
For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I will find you to be not the sort of you I want you to be. And I myself will be found by you to, to be the sort of me that you do not want me to be. It's a complex way of saying it, but do you get it? I'm going to find you and it's not the, the you that I want. You're going to find me and it's not the, the me that you want. And if you, again, if you have kids, you understand this dynamic perfectly. It's a little bit complex the way it is written it, but you, you've experienced this before. Just think about the time, the times that maybe you've been spending a little bit of time with your spouse, a little bit of quiet time, a little Saturday morning sleep in, and the kids are off doing their own thing. And then it kind of dawns on you with this sort of cold hearted fear that you haven't heard any of them speak for a long time. And Right, and the chill just sets in. Things are too quiet out there. And all of a sudden, you fear that perhaps when you go into the room where they are, you will find not the sort of you that you want to find, and they will find not the sort of me that they want to find. And it's because they've been playing up. It's because they have drawn in texture all over the walls. It's because they've decided to do a cook-up and the kitchen is devastated, right? Whatever it is, that's the fear. The fear is that you'll find something you don't want and they'll find in you, the authority, something they don't want. And that's the fear that Paul has as he plans this third trip to Corinth. Now, what are the fears that he has? It's, it's, again, it's complicated because he has confidence in them. He believes that for the most part, the majority have actually turned away from these super apostles. They've actually come back to the truth of the gospel. He has this confidence in them. And you remember, we saw this in, in chapter 7. Um, he says, uh, Jimmy preached this passage. Chapter 7, verse 5 to 7, he said, in fact, when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. Indeed, we were troubled in every way, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the arrival of Titus. And not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Titus has come back from Corinth reporting to Paul and the others that these guys have repented. They feel a deep sorrow about leaving the path, about going after these super apostles, but they are they've experienced a godly grief now and they've come back to the truth. And so Paul is confident that that's still the case. And yet he he harbors these fears that there might be some in the church in Corinth who are who are once again leading people astray that as yeast works through the whole lump of dough, uh, the 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 Disunity and impurity of these people are going to start undoing all of this work of repentance that has happened and gone before. And so he has this tension. You can, you can hear it. He's confident, but he is concerned. 
So what is he fearing? What is, what is he afraid of that he'll see when he gets there? Second part of verse 20. He says, perhaps there will be quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. He's worried that all of these uh, relationship killers, all of these unity killers will be manifest among the church when he arrives. Quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder, all of these things that are actually present at some level in every church and always has been. That these things will cause such disunity that it will essentially consume the church from within. We've seen this so many times in our own time. No wonder Paul is fearful because those things are unity killers. We don't have time to go into each one of them, but we could. We could do an eight-week sermon series just on those eight things. So there's the, the unity killers, and then he's, he's also fearful of the purity killers. All right. So in verse 21, he says, I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence, and I will grieve for many who sinned before and have not repented of the moral impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they practiced. unrepentant moral impurity sexual immorality and sensuality essentially these these manifestations of impurity which the corinthians have struggled with from the beginning he's worried that these things like a little ember are going to flame up again and destroy the church now we need to know and it's very evident if you've read through one corinthians this he's not this is not theoretical. This is not abstract. He's not spitballing some random fears that, about the state of the church. This is what has gone before. Particularly if, if you read 1 Corinthians 5, and I had planned to kind of read it to you, but I, I feel I've, I've taken uh, enough time now. Um, read through 1 Corinthians 5, and you will see just the state that the church was in when he wrote that first letter to them. There was rampant relational disunity and rampant sexual impurity, and it was destroying the church. It may have been the foothold required for Satan's servants to come in and do what they've been doing, as seen in evidence in the second letter that we've been working through. But these things kill churches, and these things destroy Christians, and he's worried about them. Yes, he's confident of their repentance, but he's also conscious that some may not have repented. And that's what's at issue here. It's not that these things in themselves just can't be in, in the church, otherwise you're not the church. These things, those things that I've listed, those 11 things, are, are, are present in every church in different ways, in, to different extents. They're present in our church. Let's just be real about it, right? The point is, and the question is, is there repentance? 
Is there a desire continually to put those things to death so that we might follow in the footsteps of, steps of Jesus in making all of life all about Jesus? Putting to death disunity and impurity and submitting them to the Lordship of Jesus. Is it there? If it's there, then you have a church which is walking in God's will and God's ways. We are not looking for a perfect church. That's not going to happen until God makes it perfect in the new creation. Until then, we're looking for a church which is continually mortifying sin, continually repenting of sin, and yes, God willing, moving ever so slowly in sanctification towards more and more Christ-likeness. The question is, is there repentance? That's what he's fearful of in that verse 21. I, I will grieve for many who sinned before, probably thinking back to that 1 Corinthians 5, who sinned before and have not repented. That's his thing. That's his fear. Paul sees himself as a shepherd of the sheep in Corinth. There's a reason that we use that terminology of being a pastor. Right? It comes from the, the pastoral. It's, it's shepherding. It's shepherd-like oversight of Christians. It's not meant to disparage or be a pejorative denunciation of people as sheep. It, no, it just gives an image of the kind of relationship that a pastor should have for his people, a deep concern and love for them and a willingness to protect them. That's what Paul has. He wants to protect them. He wants to guard them. If you go back and read that 1 Corinthians 5 passage, he says, listen, a little bit of yeast works through the whole lump of dough. He says, look, I'm not judging those outside of the church. I'm, I'm, I'm called to judge those within it. That's my role as a pastor. I need to judge you so that I can protect you. And his great fear is that there is sin without repentance. My own time here, nine, ten years, I've very infrequently, but nonetheless, I've had to, on occasion, confront unrepentant sin. And on a couple of occasions, I've had to ask the offending party where there was not repentance to be removed from the community that we have here. Again, that 1 Corinthians 5 passage, Paul tells them they must exclude, they must essentially excommunicate, they must, uh, they must separate themselves from these people who are sinning without repentance. He puts it graphically where he says, hand that person who's sleeping with his father's wife, hand that person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that he might be saved. That is, hand him over to Satan means take him outside of the church community so that he can see the seriousness of this sin and then in wanting to be reconnected to the body of Christ, he will come to repentance. I've had to do that on one occasion with someone who was committing adultery. I confronted them about it in a very, in a, in a very, I think in a very warm-hearted, winsome way. Their response was, I'm not going to stop and I know that God will forgive me. And 
my only choice then is to say, as long as you have that attitude and as long as you have that determination, you cannot be part of this community. I will not risk the sheep of this pasture if you're going to continue to, to have that attitude. A again, in another situation, there were... Uh, trying hard not to not to reveal anything too much here, but there was a situation where someone was sowing disunity, uh, not only in trying to have people turn against the leadership of our church, but in teaching things that were obviously at odds with the gospel that we were proclaiming. And I let that one run too long, and I was hoping that that would turn around, but in the end I had to confront it head on. And again, there was absolutely no remorse, there was no repentance, there was no acknowledgement of that what I was saying was in, indeed the case. And where there was a few witnesses who were cor corroborating my fears, and Paul will get to this next week in chapter 13 about two or three witnesses, but where, where I had all of this data together, along with a, a lack of desire to repent, my only choice was to say, so long as that's the case, you, you can't be a part of this community. As soon as that changes and there's repentance, let's throw a party. Let's put a ring on your finger and a robe on your back and kill the fattened calf and welcome you home. Yes, hallelujah, praise the Lord. That would be the best of all possible worlds. But until then, it must be this way. I had some other stuff to say, but I actually think that's probably a good place to leave it with an invitation to you, friends to please pray for your leaders. Please pray for your pastors. Whether you're watching this today as a member of Red Door, and I'm, I'm saying please pray for me, please pray for Jimmy, pray for the lay leaders who make up the, the leadership of this church, pray for us. If you are watching this and members of other churches, pr please pray for your pastors. We so desperately need your prayers because we are so broken. We, are, we fall so far short of what we want to be and what we need to be. And because the burden is great and because the stakes are eternally high, please pray for your leaders. I just, I'm thinking of Hebrews chapter 13. Let me just read this as an invitation for you to pray. Chapter 13 uh, verse 17 and 18, it says, Friends, brothers, sisters, obey your leaders and submit to them, since they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience wanting to conduct ourselves honourably in everything. Please do pray for your leaders. We need, desperately need your prayers. Well, we're coming to the end of our time in the book of 2 Corinthians. Next week we're going to jump in and, and finish chapter 13 and therefore finish the book. I ask again that you pray for us as we 
uh, approach that and uh, also that you read ahead and familiarize yourself with chapter 13. But as we go, let me, why don't I just finish with the, a word of benediction again from Hebrews 13. as just a, a blessing over us. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I do love you guys, imperfectly, failingly. I love you and I miss you and I'll see you next week.